Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. My guest today is Stanford professor Jennifer Burns. Jennifer has a new book out, Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Milton Friedman was easily one of the most important economists of the 20th century, and his positions on everything from inflation to the Federal Reserve and his broader critique of big government formed the basis for the market-oriented thought that brought the New Deal era to a close in the 1960s and 1970s and dominated the next few decades of American politics in what some call the neoliberal era. In the 2020s, however, the Friedmanite consensus is deeply under question. With the combination of the 2008 financial crisis and the critique of deregulation, the 2016 election with its theme of working class rejection of the free trade consensus, and then 2020s and 2021's supply chain crunch due to the overfixation on efficiency, over resiliency when it came to America's manufacturing base. Lots of people, this podcast included, declared that we had therefore moved on from the Friedman era and were working towards some new post-neoliberal consensus. Immediately after 2021, however, we saw inflation return with a vengeance, the exact issue that so obsessed Friedman throughout his life, making the Biden administration look much more like the Carter and Ford administrations in the mid to late 70s than a rebirth of the New Deal era in 1932. As I say to Jennifer, I've wondered whether we can say we've truly moved on from a figure if the very issue that defined their work returns to prominence. At the same time, though, it's clear that Donald Trump's iteration of the Republican Party is far less interested in, if at all, Friedman's market-oriented approach. To Jennifer's title, people will continue to define themselves as conservatives moving forward, and words and their meaning obviously change. But the next few years will determine whether the market and capitalism part of the conservative creed will reflect Friedman's thoughts or someone else's. Lastly, I'll also note that Jennifer's previous book is Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. So we also discussed that book, since Friedman and Rand together are easily the two most important figures when it comes to understanding 20th century conservatism's views of the market and the fight against the New Deal consensus. Huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. And of course, if you enjoy this episode or any others, you can go to realignment.supercast.com to support the show. Jennifer Burns, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We're going to talk about two really interesting figures who you have written excellent biographies of. Milton Friedman, that's the latest, but your original was of Ayn Rand. Can you just start by introducing, in whichever order you think is appropriate, uh, these two figures to the audience so we don't just start shorthanding way too quickly? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'll start with Rand. So she's best known as a novelist. She wrote The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Um, the Fountainhead was published in 1943. The Atlas Shrugged was published in 1957. And I was first drawn to her because when I went to graduate school in the early 2000s, people were still reading her books. And I was like, for fun. And there's not a lot of novelists where people are still reading them, you know, 50 years after they did their major work. And so <clears throat> I also felt like I had read Ayn Rand, and I knew, I didn't love the novel, but I could tell that she was doing something political in it, and I wasn't sure what that was. So really, this was my dissertation project, and my first book was figuring out how is Rand using fiction to make political arguments 
um, to bolster political viewpoints. And as I learned in my research, she grew up in Soviet Russia. She fled to the United States. Um, She cut her teeth in Hollywood. And then she basically tried to create the inverse of socialist realism. She tried to create these um, big, epic, propagandistic novels, not in the service of socialism or communism, but in the service of capitalism. So it was a really unique thing. I continue to find it fascinating. I find her both fascinating and infuriating. And so that first book was really a deep dive into how did this Russian novelist become such a force in American culture and in American politics. And the thread I tried to pull out, although I've spoken of her as a novelist, what I really was focusing on was her political ideas and the way not all readers read her politically, but those who did tended to really get into her and they became conservatives, libertarians. And the tag I came up with is she's sort of a gateway drug to life on the right in mid-century America. Um, you sort of found Rand and that set you on a certain political path. Um, so that's the first book. And I didn't have any intention of making a sort of career out of studying um, intellectual figures on the right or that were more conservative. And it took me a while to settle in on Milton Friedman. And there were a bunch of big issues I was interested in, questions about capitalism or neoliberalism, history of economics. And it just kind of occurred to me that Friedman was the way into a lot of these really big topics. And I thought in the beginning, this was going to be a lot like the Rand book. Um, And then as it unfolded, it really wasn't. I thought I was interested in Friedman, the public figure, you know, Friedman, who's still on YouTube today. Um, And as I got into it, I actually got really into the history of economics. So the book uses Friedman as a lens into the history of economics, the history of political change, economic change over the long 20th century. And that turns out to be different than what I did with Rand. I'm glad we started there because my immediate takeaway as someone who spends a lot of time studying the realignment of the American right is that if I were trying to understand 20th century conservatism, if I'm just assigning books for, you know, to put together a syllabus, I would recommend these two books, frankly, just because <laughs> the focus on free markets the intersection of libertarianism and conservatism, uh, the obvious role that communism and the USSR and like the response that played in everything is just so central to 20th century American conservatism that it's just so there. But today, I would not look at the American right for good or for ill through that economics market-oriented sense. So I'm just curious, what is your reflection on that dynamic? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, You know, I actually did think of these as maybe, and maybe there'll be a third, that um, Rand was kind of the grassroots up, that people would find these ideas on their own. You know, she was not assigned in college campuses. Now she is. They would have a feeling of discovering like a secret code that explained the world. Um, Whereas Friedman was a professor at the University of Chicago whose ideas became very influential in economics curricula. So you would be served these ideas by your authority figure, by a professor although it takes them a while to get to that point. So I sort of felt like they were like a sandwich. Um, Now there's lots of things missing. Um, If that was to be a comprehensive history of 20th century conservatism, we'd have to put religious history in there. We'd Mm -hmm. have to think about questions about civil rights and race and gender. But in terms of today, I mean, one thing I wanted to do with this book is kind of remind people there was a time when conservatives were known for their ideas. There was a battle of ideas in which conservatives were... um, really strong players and they won some really important victories. And today we really seem to have pivoted away from that in terms of 
Um, I would say that the Republican Party for sure. I think organized conservatism is still idea driven, but a lot of times it's the ideas that I've written these books about that really had their heyday in the 60s and the 70s. And they've had this enormous long tail. I think we're in a moment where I don't want to say they're dead at all. I don't think that's an accurate assessment. Um, but they are being reassessed and sort of repackaged and reintegrated with other ideas. And that to me is very natural because we're not in the Cold War. And you talked about how fundamental that Cold War context was for both of these thinkers. And so, um, of course, it's not going to last forever. So I guess one hope I have with both of these books is they're kind of a resource. I, you know, as a historian, I feel like you have to look back to know where you're going. And we can never see into the future, but we can get pretty good sight lines into the past. And so I wanted to provide that for as many people as possible. And so I really do my best. So if you are an expert on Friedman, I think you will learn things you don't know. If you don't know anything about Friedman, you're definitely going to learn a lot. If you love him or you hate him, you should be able to handle this book and get something out of it. And, you know, my high praise is as someone who really struggled with my uh, AP micro and macro uh, econ course, you were very uh, <laughs> able to make these ideas digestible um, to folks who don't have a background in economics either. So I, I just want to say something, too, that just kind of stems from something you point out in the intro. Obviously, Milton Friedman is partisan. He's a favorite of the Republican Party, but something he is able to accomplish is despite having an obvious partisan tinge, he still is able to impact the mainstream culture in a bunch of different ways that we're going to get into later in the conversation. And I guess what I'm wondering, this is kind of my, my theory as someone who works both in academia and think tank world, was his ability to be partisan yet impactful? Does that stem from the fact that he's rooted in academia? I kind of wonder if like a Milton Friedman who started working at AEI or Heritage as a research assistant, like in its current iteration, I don't think he could have been as mainstreamedly um, been accepted as much. And the same thing I think is true on the left as well, too. I think, you know, the reason why we're going to struggle to find comparable figures to Keynes on the left, um, and then, of course, Freeman on the right, is that the, the ecosystem that young people emerge into is just so different today. So that was just my personal reflection. I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, that's a that's a really great um, <clears throat> that's a really great insight, and it's not a thread I really follow. But one thing that happens in the course of the book is this parallel intellectual apparatus you describe of think tanks. I mean, there's like one or two when Friedman starts out, and they start mushrooming up all through the '70s, and they really crowd out academia in terms of providing ideas for policymakers. Um, and I think part of that's academia's fault becomes much more professionalized. Um, you know, even in economics, um, Friedman is one of the last people who writes books and talks in really easy ways that policymakers can understand that the sort of modal economist is trained to really speak a quantitative language that doesn't, that needs to be translated um, to go anywhere outside of academia. And so I think think tanks kind of grew, academia kind of shrunk in terms of its ability to speak to a broader audience and broader policymakers. And then you're right, ideas from the think tank world, by and large, come out branded as ideas for Republicans, ideas for Democrats. And, you know, you see even an idea so we could talk about, right, the, the origins of Obamacare in Romney's initiatives um, that can't be acknowledged because it doesn't fit the narrative and it gets rebranded as a democratic idea that then is then, you know, sort of stigmatized. So um, I think I think that's been a real loss. And one thing I'm trying to show with Friedman is there are a lot of these ideas that sort of bubble up, um, not just on the right and maybe not on the left, but definitely in the center. And I would say two things about that we can further explore if we want. One is that it's not just Friedman, like the times change. 
Um, mm-hmm. There is a huge episode of stagflation that really calls into question the longevity of social democracy. There is the collapse of the Soviet Union. There are these huge shifts in the world. So Friedman is helping people interpret those and respond to those. But absent those events, his impact would be different. Secondly, I think because he focused, you know, he focused on monetary policy as one of his main through lines, and that um, turns out to be somewhat technocratic, non-academic in many ways. There's a lot of practitioners in the central banking world who are, have studied economics, but they aren't necessarily the certified top economic researchers in the country. There's a whole interest of, you know, bond traders and financiers who are interested in this, and so, and then I do believe this should always be bipartisan. Um, stable macroeconomic growth is good for everybody everywhere. And so to the extent that Friedman's providing these technical solutions, now monetarism, he definitely tilted in an anti-government way, but I think it can be taken more as a technique that can be applied um, pretty much by anyone in any political approach. Something I'm curious about, because I I had the benefit of reading um, this book right as I was starting at the University of Texas at Austin, your description just of 1930s, the Great Depression is bringing all these economic questions into mind. Milton was honestly, was honestly just very exciting. This idea of, wow, the world was confusing. It was crazy. And there was this place, yeah. the University of Chicago Econ Department, where you had all these smart people together, like thinking this. I think that was very, I think that's very educationally motivating, regardless of where you're going to turn out on the economics uh, policy spectrum. And as we kind of see, you know, you're, you're at Stanford, obviously higher education has a bunch of different problems within it, That which, which is a whole other podcast. We don't have to get into that. But I'm just kind of curious, <laughs> like, podcast. how could higher education um, bring back that spirit of this is this place where we're just going to put smart people in the room because I work at think tanks. I like think tanks. There are just structural limitations to the degree which you could take academic freedom to engage with questions that I think that 1930s um, vision you articulate really well is just so appealing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the most exciting areas to research and, and to talk about. And it's in the beginning of the book. And I really show how, you know, Freeman gets the Great Depression and, and I sorry, gets to Chicago at the worst part of the Great Depression. And his professors are like, what's going on? You know, and they're sending urgent telegrams to FDR. They're crafting policy. They're really trying to apply their ideas. Um, so for me, that was interesting because I had come in with a bit of the Chicago school myth that it was going to be sort of pure laissez-faire. This is just a correction. Let's let it go. And that was not at all the case. Um, and then, you know, the discipline is trying to work out what's happening. And over time, most universities converge on an explanation of the Great Depression that's really linked to the analysis of John Maynard Keynes. Although, as I really point out, there are Keynesians and then there's Keynes and they, they are different. Um, so nonetheless, Chicago has a little bit of a different tilt. And what became meaningful for me over the course of the book was considering how, um, you know, the University of Chicago was kind of like the sand in the oyster, like it was like the irritant, like it, if the University of Chicago hadn't been there, there would have been a broad consensus among economists on how to handle many issues. And for this reason, they hated Friedman because they wished if he would sort of go away, there would be unanimity and they perceived unanimity as power, right, for for getting their ideas across. But what really struck me was that Friedman was able to incubate this heterodox approach at the University of Chicago and have the power and prestige of the University of Chicago and have the ability to spend 10 years on a, on a project, on a research project, um, and then come out and really have that clash of ideas within the discipline. And so 
for me, when I look around now, I think a lot of the disciplines have become very um, homogenous ideologically and in their methods and in their approach. And I don't think you have that clash of ideas anymore. I don't think a modern day Friedman as far removed politically and methodologically from the core of his field would get anywhere. There just wasn't so so in because academia was in a different place, there was more there was more ideological diversity. Now there was a complete lack of other diversity. And I talk a lot about how Friedman benefited from his ability to to take women as potential intellectual partners, which no one else in the field of economics seemed to do at his time. So hugely exclusionary, yet at the same time, you could have these very robust debates within academia and within disciplines. And so I feel like that is something we've lost and the ability of universities to say, hey, we're going to support a department that's going to be a little different than all the other departments in the field, but we believe that they're doing good work and they can be different and it doesn't mean that they can't be doing high-level research. So I feel some of that, that could be brought back and should be brought back. You know, something I'm uh, curious about as we're thinking about defining the the 20th century, especially the mid-20th century by, you know, Keynes and, and, and Friedman, obviously, post-1980s, it doesn't seem as if we've, as a society, produced economists who are capable of owning the public eye and owning the public sphere quite in the same way. So I kind of just did an exercise before this recording. I wrote yeah. down who I could really think about. So I thought of like on the on the right, obviously you're going to reference, you know, Arthur Laffer um, and you're going to reference like Stephen Moore of the, of the Trump, Trump White House. Now, obviously um, these are not two economists who are at the top of their field from an academic prestige perspective, but they are, I think if you talk to like the average Republican member of Congress or like smart policy staffer, they are going to be the people who they would suggest would be really present. And then on the left, I would say you would probably name, um, Stephanie Kelton, modern monetary theory, um, Thomas Piketty, you know, capital in the 21st century, Paul Krugman, and then Lawrence Summers, um, in all Four of those cases on the left, um, Kelton kind of ran into the post-COVID uh, inflation buzzsaw. We'll get to that a bit later. Um, no one actually read Capital in the 21st Century. I think that's a book that, I'm not, I'm not attacking his work, but it's a book that came out while people were searching for an academic response to a moment, rather than shaping yeah. a moment the way that Milton uh, Friedman and like Keynes did, which I think is very effective. And then I think Paul Krugman, because he's an opinion columnist, um, the type of work that he does, well, though it's serious economics, obviously, is not going to be interpreted in the purely academic sense that the guys were speaking about earlier. And then finally, Lawrence, you know, Lawrence Summers is also political in a way that isn't really normal there. But I just, once again, I'm asking for lots of responses to like rants here, but I just curious yeah, yeah. what like, you your response to that dynamic, the 20th century versus this 21st century dynamic? You know, it could happen in the future. So there really was a clear kind of clash of ideas. You had the rise of socialism and communism. Um, and then you had, you know, Keynes was trying to sort of find a third way that incorporated, you know, a sort of social safety net, but preserved capitalism. And then Freeman came up to say, no, even that third way isn't is is potentially too dangerous, and we need to go further to the um, place of markets. But but the the academic debate, the Keynes Friedman debate, is a shadow of this larger communism capitalism debate that's really dividing the world in two. And so we just have so much more clarity than we have now, right? We have a multipolar world. We have fragments. Um, we have a media landscape where it's a lot harder to get your voice heard. Um, so I think those are parts of it. So Keynes, I think, was an exceptional individual who led an exceptional life. 
Um, Friedman as well was exceptional, but he had this real grounding in academic economics. And then as I talk about the book, I really, I do not mean to be flippant about this, but Friedman had at every stage in his career, he worked with female collaborators. And my argument is that he was sort of more than one economist. He was almost like a collective of economists because he benefited from the research and the insight that these women brought into their collaborations with him. But then he was the one who got the credit. So I feel like if you look at a monetary history of the United States, he had Anna Schwartz really digging into the research and making that a narrative, you know, and putting at the center of it, this crisis of the Great Depression, which is on everyone's minds. Um, Similarly, his ideas about permanent income and then his entire emergence as a public intellectual is very much powered by his wife, who encourages him to do it and then gives him really hands on support, whether it's the documentary they did that's, you know, still out there um, or writing the Newsweek columns. So in some ways, um, Friedman, you know, is not, he's not just an individual. He's kind of the spearhead of, of, and beyond these women, there's that broader conservative movement that's really looking for a figurehead um, that has a coherent critique of liberalism and is looking for someone to, to bring it forward. So we may in the next 10, 15, 20 years, there may be more coherence around, let's say, maybe I'm just thinking out of a hat here, the national conservatives and a more progressive liberalism, and they may both be able to elevate spokespeople um, that make the case. I don't think they're going to be academics, though. I think they're going to be entertainers or celebrities because we're just in a different cultural moment. Oh, so this is where I could push back on you. I think they will be (laughs) academics, but they'll be academics who can take insights from the entertainer celebrity worlds and then perform differently. Because once again, like, what is Milton Friedman able to do, but his competitors separate from ideas can't do, he could become a television star. And not everyone can really do that. Because I think my problem with folks who kind of see the worlds of entertainment and, you know, content as serving as models is those are not processes that are capable of like generating answers. Those tend to be reactive spaces. And this is once again, why I got so excited reading about the world of the 1930s, which is if I'm thinking about, okay, we're in, this was leading to my next question, but if we're thinking about the challenges of the 2020s, what are the big questions that a serious, good faith person would seek to answer, you're not going to find those answers or frankly, those questions doing five minute reaction videos on YouTube that go viral. I think there's a real process that exists within academia. And I think you will have smart academics who find a way to turn their book into a compelling YouTube video or into a compelling appearance on Joe Rogan. That's kind of the kind of thing that I'm trying to push to people as they think about um, this space. But yeah, so uh, a way I'll set up the compare and contrast here. Um, You write very specifically, I don't quite have the quote, but you you point out that, you know, Milton Friedman is sitting um, in the faculty lounge, East Chicago, the classroom in the 1930s, wrestling with very specific questions. What were those questions that were raised by the uh, Great Depression that the traditional economic space he'd enter into didn't have concrete, straightforward answers to? Yeah. So on the biggest level, it was, it is capitalism ending, right? Because you had a broad crisis of capitalism, and this is bigger than the great financial crisis, it's global. It's it's twenty five percent unemployment. It's a like almost collapse of large segments of the banking sector. Um, people falling from you know high earning professional jobs into manual labor into destitution. So it's a complete total social crisis. And so one question is: Well, wait a second. We have this Marxist critique that has been saying for many years capitalism is inevitably going to reach a crisis and be replaced by something else. 
Um, and the number of people who are convinced that capitalism is not going to survive is really astonishing. It's just, it's just assume it's going to be something else. We're going to evolve to something else, whether you're in favor of capitalism or not, you think like it's just run its course. So that is really the crisis that, that uh, animates everyone. This, the crisis within economics is we didn't see this coming. We know there's something called business cycles and we've been analyzing them and writing about them. But the people who made their living and made their reputation, so Wesley Mitchell, MBER would be the number one of analyzing business cycles. He still didn't see it coming and he didn't have an explanation for how long it lasted and he didn't really have any solutions. And so it just seemed like, wait a second, we've been doing all this work and we don't know these kind of basic questions about why does it go, why does the economy go up and why does it go down and what should we do? And so that's really the fundamental question. And um, Friedman will return to the Great Depression and his really breakout work is a reanalysis of the Great Depression in which he says, the real reason this was so bad is because the Federal Reserve did not support the banking sector. And basically it was a banking crisis and a liquidity crisis. And we lost a third of the money in the United States. And that was it. So it was an institutional and political failure. It's not a failure of this broader system of capitalism. And that was a very much minority view. So I think today it might be that we're in like a poly crisis or a kind of a slow moving crisis. We don't, the Great Depression really focused the mind. You know, it right. was just the, the biggest question. And then of course you had, you know, fascism and communism emerging in, um, in Europe, so that it also looked like a crisis of liberal democracy. And we are talking about a crisis of liberal democracy today. I do think we are approaching a crisis. It's not at the same scope and scale of the 1930s when you have the brown shirts, when you have in multiple countries. And we also have to remember, it's not just Germany, it's also Japan, it's also Spain, it's also Italy. It's it's very pervasive. And there's you know sort of some minor fascist movements in the United States as well. Um, not to mention Soviet Russia. So, um, so I guess sometimes I take heart when I study history. I'm like, it's not, it could be worse. It could always be worse. Um, so I think in some ways that, that makes today a little harder to have these big burning questions that we know exactly what the most important question is. Yeah. And I think before we really get to, uh, Friedman's like peak years and his impact. I want to kind of zoom ahead given the frame you just provided. So anyway, as you point out, and this isn't just you pointing this out, he he passes away in 2006, um, which from a narrative perspective is like a fascinating time for him to pass away in the sense that what do you have happen two years later, the 2008 financial crisis, um, obviously bringing into mind questions of, of, of reg regulation. Um, once again, a, a minor compared to the Great Depression crisis of capitalism. Then 2015, 2016, um, you see Brexit to Trump, which also brings to mind questions about free trade and whether or not, you know, well, you know, do, does, you know, do rising tides truly lift all boats, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, um, raises questions about like the logical endpoints of like this capitalistic system. And then finally, the third crisis you have is, is COVID. And you can kind of divide the COVID crisis into two in that you have the COVID crisis, which is like, oh, wow, we prized economic efficiency to such a high degree that we didn't have any resiliency in the economy. So the supply chain crisis happens, the hospital um, domestic manufacturing crisis happens. We have that side of it. But then you also have like, 
major inflation that emerges from it, which funnily enough, like takes you kind of back to the 1970s in a different way. So depending on how you're seeing Friedman, there's a, a bit of a contradiction that kind of comes in when you're trying to do the whole like, see, neoliberalism is finished when some right. of the same conditions that birthed the political success of neoliberalism have returned. We'll get to that kind of later. But I guess given the way I just sort of set things up, these three specific events post Friedman's um, um, death, what do you see as some of the questions that if you are a, a young, smart person listening to the conversation, reading your book, like what are some questions that you should be interested in studying the same way that you could have said, wow, the Great Depression raised some questions we should think about? Yeah. So I think about the great financial crisis, there's kind of two angles to take on it. I think the dominant narrative is banks were deregulated too much and kind of ran off with the store. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. And it's interesting, earlier in his career, Friedman actually advocated like much more regulation of banking than was done. So I think one question is, how do we think about the financial sector and how do we regulate in a way that um, it's always it's always playing a game of catch up? Um, and sometimes the regulations can have um, consequences that aren't foreseen. The other thing I really stress in that is a lot of this deregulation started in an episode of high inflation in the late 1970s and 1980s. And so, again, there's a temptation to say, oh, it was Friedman's ideas, this ideology of deregulation caught on. Well, that was there as a framing device, but it was also true that you had high inflation and high interest rates and the business model of banks did not work. It was broken. So you had enormous um, incentives for banks to create new business models and to try to go around it. And the regulations that were set up in the 1950s were set up for a low inflation world. So. I, sound, I just have to emphasize again, like it's so fascinating to study inflation because it's a, it just it just pervasively changes in small, subtle, yet very meaningful ways, all types of economic relationships throughout the economy. Um, and so then looking right before he died, Friedman was like, the interest rate is too low. We don't need an interest rate this low. And so there's another interpretation of the GFC, the great financial crisis. That's like this was a bubble that was created by an artificially low interest rate that fed into housing. So I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it, but it did result similarly in the feeling like this is a crisis of capitalism, like we have, capitalism has been delegitimized in some way. Um, and I think that is related to this turn away from um, open markets or, or open international trade. Um, and again, I think that is something that was, we didn't really know what was going to happen. We didn't have free trade for most of the 20th century because we had half of the world's population locked up in communist nations that were not going to trade with the rest of the world. And so what was interesting to me is a few years before he passed away, Friedman seemed to be kind of rethinking his original mantra, he said, was privatize, privatize, privatize. And then he was like, you know what? It actually, I missed the rule of law and institutions. Those are even more important. So I think trying to figure out, this is a big question of the day. How do we create institutions that work right now. And I think the big question for me is how do you create institutions and restore trust in existing institutions in a totally new information landscape um, where we have, we have insight into who people are, how they operate, the dumb tweets they put out late at night um, that we simply didn't have before. There's no more sort of veneer of distance. Everything's very close. Mm -hmm. So how do we create new institutions that can thrive and prosper? Because we need those institutions to kind of stabilize society and stabilize economics. The last piece was a pandemic. And this was so interesting because um, I do think Friedman would have supported the emergency spending. 
Um, and I do think he would have said this is going to be inflationary and that's okay because we need some inflation right now. But he would have said, you, you don't quite ever know where to stop. You have to be really careful. Um, and it looks like it, we didn't stop in time. And I think that's an honest mistake. Um, but it really brings us back to some of the fundamental things Freeman said, which is if you add a lot of money to the economy, you're going to get an inflation. And we're not really used to thinking that way in the United States and seeing that is a much more familiar story, say, in Latin America. Um, and so I think that kind of has brought us full circle to some of the fundamentals that he really emphasized. And I guess what I'd be curious about then is what is your reaction to the 2020-21 era, not dancing on Milton Freeman's grave, but really just this idea of just as we've replaced Keynesianism with Freemanite thought in the 1970s, we're going to replace neoliberal thought uh, with something new. Because once again, I've, I, I, to be to be entirely frank about this, I've, you know, I've been funded by people in the post-neoliberalism space. The question I keep yeah. just asking to folks because there's a gap between a narrative and what's actually happening is, but if we cycle back into inflation, if that if in an inflationary era, if that produced neoliberalism, returning to those conditions doesn't suggest we would go in an entirely different direction. It would actually suggest we'd return to those baseline policies with 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 some modified, okay, maybe we care about supply chains more than we did. I really like the point you made about how towards the end of his life, um, you know, Friedman's thinking about the questions of like rule of law. Like you could entirely under Milton Friedman's evolving worldview say, hey, you know, maybe China isn't ready to admit into the WTO because they're not actually going to follow the agreements they're in. Therefore, Right. Are we truly replacing neoliberalism or are we just modifying just in the same way that capitalism wasn't over in the 1930s because it modified itself? It changed. You introduced new policies. Leaders responded differently. Um, what's your thought on this, whether we've moved on or not idea? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't think we have fully moved on or will fully move on. Right. I mean, it's not like neoliberalism got rid of Keynesian thinking and Keynesian analysis and Keynesian institutions. Uh, you know, those are there. They're built on them. We still have Keynesian toolkits. I think Friedman's critique was to say some of the things we thought were easy and some of the trade-offs we thought we didn't have to make, we actually do have to make. Um, and so I think there's a similar corrective now, which is like some of the things that, you know, neoliberalism, if we can talk about this kind of corporate entity, um, said we're going to happen really easily. Like capitalism and democracy are going to go together. Capitalism and freedom are going to go together. Um, you know, opening to world trade is going to be great for everybody. Like we know now those things don't happen so simply. Um, so, but it doesn't mean we, we need to immediately reverse and go the opposite way because we also know closing off economies, throwing up high tariffs, these cause problems, um, you know, spending too much over-regulating. We know these cause problems. So I tend to think of it as like, we have like, we have a toolkit and we're adding tools to it and we're taking out some that don't work. And so we're going to take out some of the market utopianism. I think that really needs to come out. And we're going to keep in, though, a lot of the basic, what I think of as Milton Freeman's basic toolkit, which is, okay, wait, before we create a government program, before we create a bureaucracy, um, can we think about incentives? And can we think about policy design so that people on the ground are making the decisions that we think will be most efficient or will be best for them? How can we devolve this downward? Um, and let it happen more organically. And I would say two more things to the to refute this Friedman is dead narrative. One is, I mean, there, there's this kind of development of supply side progressivism. It's really looking at um, 
gee, look at all the um, ways that, you know, well-intended government regulations have been captured um, to prevent building or occupational licensure has become basically a way to make it difficult to enter different professions. These have reduced opportunity. They've made it hard for federal and state governments to meet their goals. And they've actually blocked markets. They've sort of crested up the housing market is not fluid as it should be. There's, it's much too difficult to build. It's much too difficult to um, to just kind of enter into that market. And that's this is a very Friedmanite analysis. And so the fact that it can be picked up to this progressive end of like lowering the price of housing, I think is very telling. Um, and then of course, we just saw, you know, just to make a nod to Argentina, we just saw the election of someone who said, is basically saying, I'm going to do what Milton Friedman said. Now we have no idea if it's going to work or not, but this is a country that's had endemic pervasive inflation for so long and is clearly ready to try something new. And one of the things they're going to try is that Milton Friedman toolkit. So I think that's really helpful. I think the news you can use aspect of what you just described is <laughs> thinking of these things as problems. There is a problem, inflation. There is a problem, regulatory capture. And to what degree can various economic policies or even philosophies serve as like answers to those problems. I think that is almost more useful than our urge to kind of turn everything into a tidy narrative. Because as you were describing the idea of like us referring to almost neoliberalism Inc. as this corporation, you kind of raised to mind a question I often have as an interviewer, which is, Okay, but like who actually said that? So like we can say to ourselves, there we were from the 70s onwards, we said markets solve everything, this, this, or that. That was crazy. We're not going to make that mistake again. What did Milton Friedman? So like take us, ooh, ooh, this is good. What, 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 two, so two, two-part question that I think I can keep into one question. When was peak Milton Friedman? So like when is he at the height of his powers? When does he look most right? And then what did he claim would happen moving forward after that point. Um, so if it's the 80s and he's like, no, listen, I've got my PBS documentary. We're all good to go and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Like, wh wh what is your answer to that I kind of frame of the question? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two episodes of Peak Friedman. One is, I would say, 1967 to 1976. And this is, so 1967 is when he makes this very celebrated speech and he says, look, policymakers have been trying to trade off inflation and unemployment and let there be a little bit of inflation because it lowers unemployment. He says, maybe you can do that in the short term. You can't do that in the long term. In the long term, you're going to have high inflation and high unemployment. And that was not, had not been observed and documented. So it was he a theoretical case. And he basically like he finished speaking and that started to happen. Um, and, and so that was a real triumph of kind of prediction and economic theory explaining how this thing could happen. And he had this, um, you know, he'd been watching the Federal Reserve for a long time. He'd been paying attention to the money supply. And then throughout the early 70s, he's like, there's going to be a lot of inflation. It's going to be really bad. And it just kind of tick, 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 tick. So I would say that is he has a convincing argument against Keynesian economics. He can, you know, economists have to take him seriously. They have to wrestle with that. By the late 70s, another approach, the kind of rational expectations approach, which is not his cup of tea, has sort of, it's sort of like Friedman slayed the dragon. And then what rose up in his place was rational expectations, which was not his favorite approach, but he just kind of kept his mouth shut on it. And so I would say that's the arc of his intellectual influence, his political influence. He's close to George Schultz in the Nixon administration. He helps architect the Bretton Woods, ending of Bretton Woods. Like he's really a player. Um, 
Then I would say over time, um, his ideas about managing the money supply are tested with Paul Volcker and they don't work. The technical recommendations he has, it doesn't really map onto the financial space and the monetary policy space of post-1980. So then he kind of has a lull where he's a figurehead of Reaganism, but um, you know, he's not um you know, as widely, um, he's not as widely powerful in academia. The other peak Friedman, I think, is actually post-1989. Um, because I think post-1989, it's like the socialism was a god that failed. We're going to turn to capitalism. And Friedman becomes the guru of capitalism. And there was, um, I found this story in Mongolia. They had a statue of Lenin, you know, from the Soviet era. And after uh, the USSR collapsed, they went and they put a statue of Milton Friedman like across the square staring at Lenin, right? So this was the symbolism of bringing, um, taking Milton Friedman as a symbol of capitalism and taking Milton Friedman as a symbol of like hope and prosperity and there's gonna be freedom for everyone and we're gonna kind of unleash, you know, market forces all to the good. And so that's the moment when that really captures not just Republicans, but it captures the Democratic Party as well. And this is what scholars call the Washington consensus. This idea that Mm -hmm. here's how you run an economy, we know how to do it. And quick, we should impose this on uh, emerging economies, post-Soviet economies. And this is the magic formula that will make everything go well. So I think that's, that's you know, a second kind of wave of peak Friedman. And like the first wave, it does collide with reality and things don't work out as promised. I think the uh, last two sections here, um, you do this really interesting cataloging because I, I think was, I, when I think this kind of happens when we're focused on this narrative of debunking Friedman, we don't look at just the straightforward parts of his legacy in the contemporary world. I think this also goes to the point we said at the start of the podcast, pointing out that because he's partisan but not quite partisan in the modern sense, we've just bought into a lot of his ideas in the sense of oh, this is just the way things work. So I'd love to kind of go through these like kind of one at a time. So just taxes being withheld from our paychecks. This is an idea of his. (laughs) You know, that was uh, something he did when he worked in the Treasury Department um, during the 1940s. And so he was a technician who helped convince Congress that, um, so the the World War II is the first era of max taxation. And I also think this is really important. And I want people to know, like people didn't pay taxes, except extraordinarily rich people didn't pay taxes before World War II. And World War II creates the apparatus of mass taxation. And Freeman comes to rue that he played this role in creating that apparatus. So um, you just have to estimate your taxes and send them in. And they convince Congress, like, let's just have employers withhold and make the tax payments to the government. And that will be the most efficient way to do it. So it's the, I think that's one of the ironies of his career. And apparently Rose was really mad at him, was like, why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Um, another one, I think this is actually incredibly relevant because there's a military recruitment crisis going on, the uh, all-volunteer military. Yeah, absolutely. This was his favorite, uh, probably the thing he was proudest of. He you know, was, was a father in the Vietnam era and thought it was just a violation of individual rights that the state had a claim on the life of you know anyone 18 to 25, any 18, 25-year-old male. And so um, he was part of a broad lobbying effort. And again, here's where it was really important that he was a Republican um, because the anti-war cause was very associated with the Democratic Party. And he was able to say, I'm anti-draft. And here's the thing, I couldn't find him say anything about the war. He managed to be anti-draft without saying what he thought about the war, which was amazing. I mean, he must've had thoughts about it, but he just wanted to focus on the draft. And so 
he kind of legitimated it as an issue. Nixon eventually picked it up and it was Nixon who pushed forward the volunteer force. And Friedman also supported this economic analysis was actually done by a former student of his, Walter Oy, that said, look, this seems like it will cost too much, but that's because we're not counting the cost of taking young men out of American society, like at this really critical age and sending them to fight. And if we, if we factor in the cost of all, not just the lost lives, but the lost opportunities and growth is actually cheaper to pay people who want to be there, who are choosing to be there. So yeah, I mean, that's huge. Um, and it's a real shift in the idea of what is the obligation of the state and its citizens. And it's basically saying there isn't this obligation. I have to say the draft is still there. It's not used. They never completely, you still have to register with selective service, but it was not operational. And that's a, that's a really big achievement of his. And it's also a really big shift, I think, in the sense of like, what do we owe to our country or to our national polity? And Friedman felt like you, you owe to have lead your life as an individual. You don't owe military service. Yeah. And I think the way you told that story of his framing isn't really about, once again, like you could entirely make that argument. And actually, I think there's a reason why um, the modern U.S. military entirely um, supports this post-draft military conflict because morale is higher. The quality of individual soldier, marine, airman, sailor is um, higher as well, too. There was a lot of like, there was, there was a huge, there were, there were racial crises within the military in the late 60s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's able to just make this argument in this framework of like self-interest and like market-oriented thought, which is just very, very interesting. And once again, I think it goes to this idea of there are problems and economic concepts and ideas can offer us solutions and frames in ways that are applicable other than like, let's debate the war in Vietnam, which obviously would not have been the right. effective way to change that policy that would have like polarized it. Um, I think the the last um, the last two, because these are the, the, the more active ones, are just um, charter schools and universal basic income. Um, these are ones yeah. that A, are, are kind of cross-partisan in different respects, but are also, I think, both still up for grabs in a way that the all-volunteer military and the withholding, we've just settled on those yeah, as, as topics. <laughs> so those are the past ones. These are the kind of open questions, but it's yeah. interesting to see where he came down on those two. Yeah. I mean, I think the vouchers is, is a really interesting story and it, you know, he probably got it from John Stuart Mill. So it's, it's an old, it's an old idea. Um, and I think what happened towards the end of his life is he, so in the beginning, and they're, they're interrelated. So let me start with that. One thing that Freeman was concerned with since the years of the Great Depression and onward was he was concerned with poverty um, and he was concerned with inequality. Um, and he was concerned with figuring out how within a capitalist system, could you support those as he, you know, he basically said, there's, there's always going to be some people who can't make their living in the market. Let's not worry about why. Let's not judge. Let's just figure out how do we support those people. And so his original idea was um, what we would today call universal basic income. And I was astonished. I found his first ever policy paper, 1939, wasn't published, and it was a plan for guaranteed minimum income. And the logic was basically, again, you want to devolve things down. You don't want to create like you know a ministry of uh, poverty or ministry of equity or whatever it might be. You want to simply figure out who needs money and give them the money. And then they go into the market and they buy what they need. So it's the idea that preserves individual choice um, and it's, and it's efficient. And then you set a basic income level. And so, it, you know, it's also counter cyclical. So if you have a lot of unemployment, people fall below this income level, they get the income. Um, and so 
that idea it is taken different forms. It again, it was a big idea in the Nixon administration, which I, I'm not sure people are aware. Like we almost got a universal basic income thanks to Richard Nixon. Didn't work out because there's something for everybody to like in universal basic income, but there's also something for everybody to hate. So it just kind of went down in flames. Um, but it's fascinating that this was Friedman's proposal, and so I think. We sometimes think of, you know, the capitalist argument is just kind of runs roughshod. It's like survival of the fittest. We don't care about those who are left behind. And Freeman was always thinking about that. And this was his solution. So eventually it emerges as the earned income tax credit, which is still around today. And it's kind of a model for everything from the child tax credit to coronavirus relief. And Freeman kind of stops talking about it after that point, after the, so, so he'll talk about it whole first half of his life. By the mid seventies, he stops talking about it, and so there's this lull in the eighties and the nineties. Quick yeah. question: Does he stop talking about it? And this is like because obviously, like Charles Murray um, has his own like version of this. Does he stop talking about this because isn't kind of part of the thought that in many ways this like universal basic income would like replace existing governmental structure? And obviously, what we have happen is we retain the existing governmental structure government doesn't shrink and we just add it to what already exists so it seems like it seems like the political economy end he was looking for didn't end up getting accomplished in the first place it was just kind of dead end from from i think as a society we're better off but i think from his libertarian perspective this is an inconvenient dead end yeah i think it just looked like it wasn't going to happen in the 60s it looked like it could happen the nixon administration looked like it happened and then it's like the policy cycle is over They've adapted a half-baked version of my idea that you're right. He and he was kind of coy about it, but he really thought eventually we'll sweep away all of, you know, there won't be food stamps. There won't be public assistance housing. We'll just be giving people this money and they'll figure, they'll buy the food they need. They'll find the rental they need. So, and that was anathema to a lot of people, you know, who work closer, closely with um, poverty and in that policy area. The other thing that's important is that Friedman in the 60s was pretty much the only Republican slash conservative talking about this. There was not an apparatus of policy design. Um, there, there was not a whole lot. So he kind of had the field to himself. And you mentioned Charles Murray, eventually across the 1970s, conservatives catch up on social policy and the social policies they advance are really tied to traditional families, traditional values, work requirements, behavioral tests. And Freeman had none of that because he was very libertarian. He said, you should be entitled to this just because you're a member of the society and your income has fallen, but it's like a numerical thing. It did not have mm -hmm. any value judgment. And that was actually its Achilles heel because Americans love to judge, you know, and policy around poverty is very judgmental. It draws moral distinctions between people who work and people who don't. And I, I don't know that that will change. Um, so, so the lull, I think, is really unfortunate because that's when he's really famous the late 70s into the 1980s is the most, you know, he's really the household name and he's not talking about these things. And he's not thinking of new ideas about how to deal with poverty or inequality. And neither is the Republican Party really, and neither is the conservative movement. And so it's just completely gone. Now, over time, he comes to refocus on education and he decides the single biggest obstacle to opportunity is that children in America get very different levels of education depending on their zip code, you know, and he's aware that they're racially segregated as well. So he says the worst thing is to be, you know, born in inner city Chicago and you have no chance because you'll go to a crappy school. You never will get out. 
And so then he comes up with this idea of vouchers, charter schools, or he, he recommits to vouchers and charter schools because he thinks this is the only way you can equalize opportunity. And then when he sees globalization unfold, he gets even more committed to um, the educational reform because he thinks, wait a second, now the low-skilled American worker is in a global competition. And you know, American schools don't stack up very well to schools in other industrialized nations. He knows that. And he believes the only way you're going to improve the American education system is through competition. So that, again, is where it's where he and Rose leave his money to their money in the end to the foundation. And if you get him in any interviews, he'll just come back to um, you know, voucher school choice competition in the public school system. Texas, I'm in Texas, obviously, and the uh, school vouchers just kind of like went down to defeat um, again as part of like the special legislative session. And it seems to me that the dynamic that uh, Friedmanite thought has never been able to escape is the idea that it's not a modification of this broader post-New Deal consensus we've all agreed to, but it's actually just this Trojan horse. So like, for example, in Texas, it's not just that like, you want to have like vouchers so that you could, hey, like you're in a rural school, maybe you use that, you know, uh, you know, you use that, you use that um, savings account to like do an online school or this, it's actually just that the people who support it actually don't believe in modern public schooling. So I guess my question to you is to what degree is Friedman like Dwight Eisenhower in that like he's not quite he wouldn't vote for the new deal if presented to him but like this is where we are my job is to accept that and move on or does he really have this belief that over time we have to replace the system or the system isn't going to work because it seems like the suspicion over which reformers on the libertarian side have to answer some version of that question and when they fail it tends to be when they're seen as radicals who are seeking to overturn the consensus yeah, I mean, I it's sort of both, right? So he definitely thought we could do fine with no public education system. Um, and I don't think he really thought that through. Like, so what happens? There has to be some form of regulation. I mean, what happens if people decide to start the madrasa or, you know, the religious school that doesn't teach math? Like, so he didn't he didn't really think through that. I think that was sort of his goal. But along the way, another goal that was probably just as important was Let's inject some competition into the system and make it better. So it is, it is, it is true that if you're if you're if you're looking for his ultimate ends, there's a lot, there's a lot of reason to be suspicion, suspicious of Friedman. At the same time, I think we're really far from abolishing the public school system. And I think taking a few steps towards his goal could actually improve it quite a lot. Um, so I think sometimes he's his own worst enemy because there, there is that purity streak. Um, the other thing I would say, you know, probably where this is going to end up going is is we're never going to go all the way to where Friedman wanted. Now, just like we're never going to go all the way where Rand wanted, but a, a tincture of something can often be beneficial when taking the whole bottle would kill you, right? So mm. we could think about, you know, one thing I know that is been t- being talked about more recently is just district choice or school choice within your state. So that instead of going where you are, you know, where your zip code is, you go a couple zip codes over. And then that creates um, competition without setting up a parallel structure. And it basically means that schools have to try to attract students. They have to really try. And I think that, you know, COVID gave a boost to this. But what has happened, as I understand it, in the 10 years before COVID is that um, uh, Christian... um, conservatives became more active in the school choice and school voucher movement 
in a way that really polarized and kind of made it more partisan. And so I think then we're kind of have gone back. We had a moment where like both sides were interested and then we've kind of gone back into, into our camps. I think it will be fought out for a long time and it might be like a long, slow, <clears throat> slow moving reform. But as long as, I mean, we, you read it every day, kids can't read, right? Mm-hmm. If the educational establishment was captured by some philosophy of reading that didn't work. That's not happening in the private schools in the United States. Private schools in the United States are not turning out kids who can't read. That's just not happening. And it's happening in the public school system. And these are sort of facts on the ground. They're problems. Like you said, this is a problem. The ranking of the United States school system vis-a-vis other industrialized nations is a problem. And so let's figure out all the tools that might possibly help us with this problem. So for the final question, because what you just said was a, a great place to end this. This obviously took you a while to write. And as I'm just thinking about this as a person who you you write in research, I have look at big narratives and kind of try to force them into some sort of coherent whole. <laughs> the book could be interpreted in so many different ways, depending if you finish just a little quicker. So if you release this book in 2019, you could have had a final chapter saying, as the era of Bernie Sanders and democratic socialism comes about, we could be, but obviously like that didn't happen on 15 different levels. So I guess I'm just curious as, a, as an author, What's it like to write this like full biography of this person when depending on the year in a five-year period? Like, what if you released this November of 2020? There would you would you would have had to write a quick kind of you know, we've all seen those rushed little endings, the publisher forces. And of course, as we see COVID, we're forced to answer these big questions. <laughs> but so like just I'd love to hear like what I was I was just I was like, man, what was she thinking as uh, she's writing this? Tell me about that. Like, let's finish there. You know, it it did take a really long time. I mean, pretty much as long as writing a monetary history did, which is a little <laughs> embarrassing to admit. But I would just say, you know, for, for all the authors or dissertators or writers out there, it's just going to be done when it's done. And it probably is going to turn out to be the perfect time because you really can't time these things. Um, my book on Rand came out right when, you know, Paul, the market crashed and then Paul Ryan was nominated to be vice president. I didn't plan any of that. And with this, the whole time I've been writing the book, I've been like, Journalists will call me and they always want to talk about the social responsibility business. And I'm like, how about we talk about inflation? And nobody's interested in inflation, right? And I'm geeking out on inflation. And so I'm very grateful that this at least has come back into people's view. And I'm able to say like, sure, the past 20 years, we've benefited from low inflation and by and large, you know, pretty much stability, right? So we don't often think of it, but from 1980, See, the great financial crisis is a really nice period of economic stability. Of course, we're going to talk about inequality and all this, but actually we have no major crises. We have no major recessions. It's pretty good. Um, And so people forgot entirely about inflation. And so um, I think that I was, the book was always going to be talking about inflation, but it would have seemed kind of like, why is she going on about this? And it just became a lot more relevant. I think For me, I had a sense in the beginning that conservatism was changing and was in flux. And I thought that would be the biggest service that the book could do, which is to explain sort of what mid-century conservatism was, what classic American conservative movement conservatism was. And what really makes it distinctive is things like, is people like Friedman. You know, conservatism in other countries is often arrayed against economic liberalism. Um, It's suspicious of capitalism. And in the United States, it incorporates that. And so he really wanted to show that. And I don't know what happens next, but I do think this is a story of kind of ideological synthesis and change that is worth thinking about as we get into this moment. I mean, tell my students, 
realignments are so easy to see in retrospect and they're impossible to see when you're in them. And so we don't really know where we are. We're kind of in the eye of the hurricane. Um, but I hope that this book gives us some sense of how social and political change does unfold and how ideas interact with the, the actual world that you know people have to grapple with. Yeah, I just love that note about realignments because I think as the pod, I've been doing this podcast for almost five years and at the start of the podcast, this realignment is this very straightforward thing. We're pushing it on everyone's throat, but the more you try to force it into a convenient, straightforward narrative, the less, once again, a useful tool it is and the less of a coherent end comes out of that. So I think that's an excellent place. Um, Jennifer, this has been really fun. Once again, I really recommend the book. Um, I recommend these two books together because once again, this is like 20th century conservatism. And as conservatism is like reassessing itself on a couple of different levels, understanding these roots from both respects is just very, very key. So thank you so much for joining me on The Realignment. Yeah, thanks so much. Enjoyed talking to you. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something like this sort of mission or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.